0: You are listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Today's reading is Exodus chapter 32, starting at verse 1 to 35. Exodus chapter 32. Starting at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off your gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they had handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it, and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that you brought them out, to kill them in the mountains, to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and I will give your descendants all this land I have promised them and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on the people the disaster he had threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf the people had made and burned it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that led you into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so had become a laughing stock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, killing each, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold, but now forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck down the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Father God, we pray, Lord, in your mercy,
1: with the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, last week uh, was half term for my kids. They were off school. uh, And so my middle son, Zach, and I went away for a few days. Now, we did lots of fun things over those couple of days, uh, but one of the highlights, for, for me at least, was we went to a planetarium. Give me a nod if you know what a planetarium is. Not many of you. Okay, this, this is a, a picture of it on the screen behind me. It is basically, it's basically, a building that has a big dome roof. And the dome roof is used as a projector screen to show movies about space. I can see you all think that sounds terribly boring. But for a space nerd like me, that's pretty much the coolest thing you can do. Anyway, we watched this film, and the film was about the solar system, what the solar system is and and where the solar system has come from. Uh, Let me explain. Let me give you a quick lesson on the solar system, okay? The solar system is called the solar system because at the center of it is the sun, okay? And round the sun in orbit... Going round and round are the planets, and then round a lot of the planets go moons orbiting the planets. So, so moons orbit planets, and planets orbit the sun. Okay? That's how it works. So far, so good, right? Yeah? Everyone following me? Okay, the thing I learned last week that I didn't know beforehand was where moons come from in the first place. Apparently, apparently moons were either part of the planets, and they they used to be part of the planets orbiting the sun, but then a meteor hit, knocked them off, and then they started orbiting the planet instead of the sun. Or else, they were asteroids that were orbiting the sun, but somehow went out of orbit and ended up orbiting planets instead. Now, you're sitting here and you're thinking, goodness, this is boring. Why is he telling me all of this? not just because I want you all to be space nerds as well, but because I realized watching this film that it is an excellent, excellent illustration of the human condition. What are human beings? We were made by God for God. We derive our life and our health by orbiting our lives around him. But but sin came into the world, human rebellion, and it knocked us out of orbit. Instead of having God at the center and orbiting our lives around him, we started to orbit our lives around other things, things that God has made, whether it be sex, money, power, good looks, family, Or success. We human beings, we are planets who have become moons, dead moons. Anyway, with that in mind, let's turn to to Exodus. Chapter 32. Uh, just a reminder of where we're up to in the book of Exodus. Uh, the Israelites, they were slaves in Egypt. That's what it was at the beginning, Exodus chapter 1. Uh, but God miraculously rescued them out of Egypt. He, he, he led them through the parted Red Sea out into the wilderness. There in the wilderness, he fed them. He gave them water to drink from a rock. He, he defeated their enemies, and then he led them to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up onto Mount Sinai to receive the law. And the people are left waiting. Which brings us to Exodus chapter 32. And our first point today, what are you orbiting your life around? What we read in verses 1 to 6 of Exodus 32, it's, it's shocking, isn't it? Remember, the Israelites had only just received the Ten Commandments. Just months earlier. Exodus chapter 24 verse 3 tells us that after receiving the commandments, Moses came down from Mount Sinai and gave the commandments to the Israelite people. So they knew the Ten Commandments. They knew commandment one. You shall have no other gods before me. They knew commandment two. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven or on earth below. In other words, you are only to worship me as I say I am to be worshipped. And the people heard that. And according to Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, they said, the people, everything the Lord has said, we shall And then here, in verse 1 of Exodus chapter 32, the people gather around Aaron and they say, come make us gods. And and so Aaron replies, okay, strip off all of your bling, verse 2, let me smelt it down. And then he takes out his little chisel and he chisels out of this, this collection of bling a golden calf, saying, behold. These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. It was great to have City Church Youth up here reading the passage for us because they've been going through the book of Exodus alongside attending these sermons. And a few weeks back, the group came together and they set about writing a list of questions that they wanted to have answered in this sermon series. And one of them was this. Okay, I'm quoting question is this, the golden calf, how could the people turn away from God so quickly when they could see God's presence on the mountain, and when they'd only just committed themselves to the Ten Commandments? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? Exodus 32, it, it almost sounds unbelievable, doesn't it? well let 's try to dig down into the psychology of the Israelites at this point in time. What was going on in their heads and in their hearts we 'll we'll look at verse one verse one, we find them grumbling. Why are they grumbling? Well, because Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain now Exodus chapter twenty four verse eighteen tells us exactly how long Moses was up on the mountain for it was. 40 days and 40 nights. Now, now granted, that is not a short period of time, but it's not that long either, is it? It's just over a month. And the people had become impatient. Now, Now, I want you to think what is impatience? What makes you feel impatient? When impatience happens, when when something you want depends upon someone or something other than you, and you are not happy with the time frame in which it's happening. That's what impatience is. I know what impatience is because I get impatient pretty much every single weekday morning. Okay, I'm stood down there by the front door, waiting to go on a school run, and I am impatient because one of my children has forgotten a piece of their school uniform or forgotten to pack their school back. That's impatience. Impatience happens when we're not in control and we want to be. And that was what the Israelites were experiencing at the start of Exodus chapter 32, And it led them to seek to wrestle back control and to make things happen on their own time frame. Now, the Bible commentators, they disagree about precisely what command the people were breaking at this moment in time. Were they breaking the first commandment or were they breaking the second commandment? So were they they asking Aaron to make them a different God? a a, a better God, or or were they asking him to make them a way to worship God in a different way? It's hard to know for sure. I mean, verse 1 makes it sound like it's a first commandment issue. They want, verse 1, God's plural, who will go before them, just like Yahweh only better. But then Aaron's reply, it makes it sound like it's a second commandment issue. He he makes them an idol, verse 4, and he says to them, These are your gods who brought you out of Israel. This is a representation of the Lord. He's saying this is is Israel's redeemer. And notice verse 5, When everything's set up, Aaron announces tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. The word used there is the Hebrew word Yahweh. He's making his golden calf so that they will have a festival to the Lord God, the God of Israel. You know, it's quite possible, actually, that what's really going on here is that the people are asking for a different God... And Aaron seeks to arrange a compromise. Instead of making a different God, he'll make a new way to worship the Lord God. A way to worship him right now on their terms. And it's utterly tragic. You see, while Aaron is saying all of this... Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and while he's up there, he is receiving instructions from the Lord about how the people are to worship him. As Aaron is chiseling away on his pathetic lump of gold, trying to make a golden calf... Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving instructions from the Lord about how Bezalel and Oholiab are to make gold, silver, and bronze furnishings for the temple. What Aaron does in these verses, it is a pathetic attempt to do what God is already doing for Israel. Born out of a desire for them themselves to be in control and to make things happen when they want it to happen. The people, they have been knocked out of their orbit around God and have started to orbit around created things instead. And it is shocking. But it's not surprising, is it? I mean, don't we experience this all the time? A couple of months back, we were thinking about money and anxiety. And we looked at that passage, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, where Jesus commands that we shouldn't worry, not about money, not about food, not about clothing, because God has it all in hand. We know that's God's promise to us, don't we? But how many of us grow impatient and resort to overwork and constant fretting about finances as we orbit our lives around our jobs or around our bank balances rather than orbiting them around God. We know that God has promised to satisfy us relationally on the deepest, most incredible level. In Matthew Chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We know in our heads that that is a promise of God. We know it's true. But in our hearts, so often we think, well, yeah, that's okay. But really, I need to have a, a satisfying Sexual relationship in order to be whole. And when that doesn't seem to come on our time frame, we, we start to look for a relationship with someone else who's not a Christian or with someone of the same sex. Or, or we struggle with sin. We struggle with this sin that we keep on struggling with again and again and again, and we are just incredibly frustrated. It's driving us crazy. We want a way out, and we know we know that according to the Bible, God has given us everything we need in His Word, in the sacraments, in the church. But we think, if I'm really going to nail this sin, I, I need something more, and so we seek it out in Catholic and Eastern Orthodox disciplines and rituals. Now, I'm not saying that we haven't got anything to learn from those other Christian traditions. But when we start to depend upon those things as if they are a silver bullet, rather than depend on the ordinary means of grace, well, we're trying to worship God then on our own terms and on our own time frame. We started to orbit our lives around created things rather than the creator himself. We've become moons instead of planets. And that has consequences, which brings us on to our second point today, rescue from the solar flare. Now, those moons that used to be uh, parts of planets or asteroids orbiting around the sun, They were better protected when they were orbiting around the sun. They were better provided for by the sun when they were orbiting around it. And when they became moons, they they lost their atmosphere, and the sun became a source of death instead of life. Well, something similar happens when we cut ourselves off from the source of life. Uh, Take a look at verses 7 to 14. Uh, The Lord is speaking here to Moses, but suddenly he cuts off what he's saying and says, Moses, you've got to go down because your people have become corrupt and are worshipping an idol. Verse 9, your people, they've become stiff-necked. Now, that's a metaphor, like an ox that won't bend and submit to a yoke, so the people of Israel will not submit themselves to God's law. And so verse 10, the Lord says, leave me alone, that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Now, I think we read these verses and and many of us will really struggle with them. It sounds like God's having a tantrum, doesn't it? Look, people aren't behaving, and, and I am hopping mad with it, and I am going to go and smite them now. You know, I think our problem is that we, we view anger as always being a bad thing. And of course, for us, for us fallen human beings, anger almost always is a bad thing. We know that when we get angry, usually we lose control of ourselves, and usually our anger, it is mixed with sinful feelings of pride, of envy, of self-pity. But we mistakenly assume that anger is the opposite of love, and it's not. I mean, just... For a minute, think about the sort of things that you get angry about. Your work, family, church, Liverpool football club. We only get angry about the things that we really care about. The opposite of love is not anger. The opposite of love is indifference, We are indifferent about things we don't care about. We get angry when what we love is threatened. So God's anger doesn't show that he hates his people. Rather, God's anger shows that he loves them. And unlike our anger, God's anger is not polluted by pride or selfishness or self-pity. It is a holy anger. It is the just and proper response to humanity's rebellion against him, It's the right response to their decision to become moons instead of planets. And his anger is tempered by compassion. I mean, as we're reading through that, you did notice that, didn't you? The Lord told Moses what he intended to do. He told him. Why did he tell him? Why didn't he just just wipe out the Israelites? Why tell Moses? Well, take a look at verse 14. After Moses had pleaded, after he'd interceded on behalf of his people, we read, the Lord relented and did not bring on the people the disaster he had threatened. Now, that word relented is a a Hebrew word, nakam, and it means to change one's mind. But of course, God can't change his mind. God's unchanging. He does not change anything. He does not change his mind. Which means that what happens here is all part of God's plan. God's love for his people meant that he must be angry at their rebellion. His justice demands that he must judge But he told Moses what he planned to do so that Moses could intercede for them. So that Moses could step into the breach representing the people of Israel and bring salvation to them as a representative of God. Moses' intercession was God's chosen means to rescue the Israelites. So we need to look carefully at what Moses said. Look at these verses, verses 11 to 13. Moses makes four arguments, four reasons why God should not destroy Israel. Firstly, God's work. Moses points out all that God has already done for the people, verse 11. The the plagues, the Passover, the parting of the Red Sea, the feeding with manna. And he says, having done all of that, God, are you really going to destroy them now? Secondly, Moses points to God's glory. Look at verse 12. He says, if you destroy them now, the Egyptians, they're going to mock you. Not for our sake, Lord, but for your own glory, rescue them. Then thirdly, God, uh, Moses points to God's character, Moses knows that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. So he asks in verse 12 to relent. And then finally, the clincher. Moses pleads God's promises. You promised, Lord, not to me, but to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, verse 13. You promised that their descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky. You you can't just wipe them out because you promised that you wouldn't. You must find a way, Lord, both to judge sin and keep your promise to Israel. Friends, I, I think this is so helpful, so helpful to us as we think about how we pray for our unbelieving friends and colleagues. I've got unbelieving friends and family. And the thought of them spending eternity in hell, it cuts me to the heart. It makes me feel deeply, deeply, deeply sad and uncomfortable. And I'm tempted to think, but but that's not fair. I, I don't want to believe in a God like that. And they're not that bad after all. But of course, none of that is true. It is fair. And me, and you, and and everyone else in this room and in this city, we, each of us, we deserve to be judged by God. A God who cared nothing about our rebellion against him, well, he would not be a God worth worshipping. Now, we need to look not to ourselves, but we need to look to God himself. When we pray for ourselves, when we pray for our unbelieving friends, when we pray for this city of 2.8 million people, 95% of whom are heading towards an eternity of hell, we mustn't just pray excuses. No, we need to plead God's work. God's glory. God's character. And God's promises. That and that alone is the only hope for rescue. Which brings us to our third and final point today realigning our orbit around God. How do we get back to to orbiting our lives around God rather than around created things? Well, Moses comes down the mountain at this point in time. He's carrying two stone tablets of the law, and as he reaches the bottom, he throws them to the ground, smashing them into a million pieces. He's saying, Israel, this is what you've done to your covenant promises. You've shattered them. And notice the conversation that, Moses and Joshua have as they head down. They hear this peculiar noise down in the camp. Now, Joshua, he's a military man, so he assumes it must be war. What else could it be for a military man? But Moses knows it's not war. He knows it's something worse. Singing and dancing. Okay, not that there is something wrong with singing itself. We, we love to sing here at city church. Nor is there something wrong with dancing. Some of us love to dance here at City Church. But that word translated revelry back in verse 6, the end of verse 6, it almost certainly refers to an orgy. You see, singing and dancing for the Lord, that is holy and that is good. But when it's for an idol, well, we see here that sin leads to idolatry that leads to immorality. That is always, always, always the case. And that's why Moses does this peculiar thing in verse 20. He takes the idol, and he he burns it, and then he grounds it down like it's coffee grains. He mixes it with water, and then he forces the Israelites to drink it. It's a lesson for the people. It's a lesson to help them to realign their orbit. That idol that was leading them into immorality, where does it end up? It ends up as feces. Who? as it goes out through their digestive tract and comes out the other end. Moses tries to realign the people's orbit by showing them the gravity of their sin, smashing the law, and then showing the folly of their sin, showing exactly what the idols they were worshipping were in reality. And then we're given this this counterexample of Aaron. Aaron is an example of how not to repent. Take a look at the conversation that Moses and Aaron have in verses 22 to 24. Moses confronts Aaron, and Aaron does three things here. Three things that I am tempted to do every time that I am confronted by my sin. Firstly, he makes light of it. Then he blames others. And then thirdly, he spins the story. So he makes light of it. Look at verse 22. Do not be angry, my Lord. Oh, oh, little brother Moses. don't, Don't get so upset about it. It's just a little sin. It happened. It's done. Let's move on. Isn't that the way we so often think? Yeah, perhaps me and my girlfriend, we went too far last night. But at least we didn't have sex. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I I may have got a bit tipsy when I was out with my friends, but at least I wasn't paralytic like the rest of them. Friends, we need to call sin, sin. We need to treat it seriously. Next up, Aaron blames the Israelites. "It's, It's all their fault, he says, verse 23. Again, isn't that the way we so often think and justify our sin? The reason I'm so unkind to other people is because people are unkind to me. The reason I'm struggling in my walk with the Lord is because my Christian friends at church, well, they're just not encouraging me at the moment. And then, thirdly, Aaron spins the story. Up until the end of verse 24, everything that Aaron has said has been factually true. And then he says, I threw the gold into the fire and out popped this calf. It was magic. No mention of the whole smelting it down, taking out a tool and delicately chiseling out the calf himself. No, it it just happened. Don't we say the same thing? We are masters of spin, of, of keeping most of the facts as they are and then just ending it a little bit differently to make it look like we're in the right. Friends, we need to repent. We need to call sin, sin. And we need to plead God's work, God's glory, God's character, and God's promises. Now, what happens in verses 25 to 29? Let's be honest about it. I think it makes all of us feel pretty uneasy. If we're Christians, we know we shouldn't feel uneasy about this, but that doesn't stop us feeling uneasy about it. After all, isn't this what underlies pretty much all the religious conflict we see going on around the world. People thinking that they have a license from God to to kill the heathen. But look at what actually happened here. Look carefully. Verse 26, Moses calls on the people. He says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. He gives them a choice. Every single one of them has a choice choose the Lord or choose your idol. The implication being it was only those who were the ringleaders of the idol worship who then subsequently failed to repent who were killed. And 3,000 men die in total. Now, that's a lot of people. But it was just half a percent of the men in Israel at the time. It was just 0.15% of the total Israelites. Back in verse 10 of Exodus 32, the whole nation of Israel, every man, woman, and child, would have been judged and destroyed, but God, in his mercy, simply remove those who chose to lead the people into idolatry and then subsequently refused to repent and turn back. It's important to say that this all happened under the old covenant, where God's people were ethnically defined. The only way people could be removed from the people of Israel was by death. There was no other option. We today live under the new covenant where God's people come from all peoples and all nations. And removal for unrepentant sin comes through church discipline and removal from church membership. And that's something we've had to do here at City Church. And if we're honest, when we do that, we often feel much the same way as we feel when we read these verses, verses 25 to 29. It makes us feel icky. None of us, certainly not the leaders of City Church, enjoy exercising church discipline. But it is necessary when people are unrepentant. If we as a church want to realign our orbit around God. But as we close, we need to ask the question, how is any of this possible? Yes, Moses and the Israelites, they take steps to put away their idols, uh, to treat them like their dung. They remove those who refuse to repent from the people of Israel. They trust in God's grace and God's promises. But how can God forgive them and still be just? How can he fulfill his promises while still judging sin? We'll turn over and take a look at verses 30 to 35. Moses tells the people that he's going back up the mountain, verse 30, to make atonement for their sin. And notice what he does. Verse 31, he he, he doesn't do an errand. He doesn't try and excuse their sin and make light of it. No, he confesses their sin. No excuses, no spin. And then verse 32, he offers to be punished in their place, to be blotted out of God's book of life. Try to get your heads around this. Back in verse 10, the Lord looks at Moses and says, Moses, I'm willing to start afresh with you. You can be king of the world. You can be a new Noah, a new Abraham. The whole of my people can descend from you. This is what I'm offering you. The verse thirty three Moses offers to die instead of the people eternally be damned in their place. In verse thirty three, God says No. Why? Well, because, verse 34, sinners must be punished for their own sin. And you see, the problem for Moses was that he he had his own sin to pay for. He didn't have the power to realign the people's orbit back around God because Moses himself was part of the problem. A better Moses was needed. A sinless Moses. Someone who, like Moses, had the offer to rule from a throne, yet, like Moses, chose to die in the place of his people, chose to be blotted out of the book of life. And that's what happened 2,000 years ago. That's what verse 34 is pointing forwards to. The Israelites were punished for their sin as Jesus Christ hung upon that Roman cross, dying in their place, he was blotted out so that they didn't have to be, so that we don't have to be. That is the only way we can be returned to orbiting our lives around God rather than orbiting our lives around ourselves. So my question for you this afternoon is this. Will you come to the Lord? Will you come to him today to receive forgiveness for your sin? Will you come to him today so that he will restore you to orbiting around the source of life itself? Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much that you have made a way for us to be forgiven. You have made a way for us to be restored to what we should have been. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are a better Moses. You are the one who perfectly intercedes for us. Pleading your work, your finished work, pleading God's glory, pleading your own character, and fulfilling every single promise with a yes and amen. Thank you that because of that, there need be no fear. There need be no death. For you, Lord Jesus, have conquered sin and death and Satan forever. Amen.